My text this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, although we'll be looking at some other verses as well. But if you give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your Word is strong, potent medicine for this soul. Take it and by your Holy Spirit, place it deep in us that our minds, our wills, our emotions might be disciplined by this word, transformed and made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I have good news for you this morning. I have good news. It is the gospel, and I'm bringing the gospel to Christians. Why do I need to bring the gospel to Christians? Because I don't think that Christians believe the gospel. I don't think we believe the gospel enough. Uh, Before I could... uh, before I could come here, I had to get a ticket from an airline. I had to present that ticket. Once I, once I got that ticket, I had it with me. And then I held on to that ticket until it was time for the airplane to go. And then I showed them my ticket and I got on. And because I was allowed to get on because I had that ticket. And I think that for many of us, we live our lives as Christians far too much like what we have received as a ticket we got a ticket from God. We received it by grace through faith, and we have that ticket. And one day, the, the uh, train or the airplane or whatever is going to come that's going to bring us, some angels on chariots, whatever it is, is going to bring us, and we'll present that ticket, and then we'll go to heaven. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of Jesus Christ and so much more. And so much more. And, and I, I believe that as Christians, we don't believe all that is given to us, all that we have in Christ Jesus. As you read through the, all of the epistles um, of Paul over and over again, uh, much of his prayers for those congregations are not prayers that they would receive more power. It's not prayers that they um, would receive more of the Spirit or, or those kinds of things. It's really more understanding, more enlightenment of what they have in Christ Jesus of what they have already received in Christ Jesus, of what they have in the power of the Spirit and how He is at work in them, that they would understand the the power of the work of the gospel in them today in the midst of their lives. There is a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. It's one of the five points of Calvinism. In case you don't know, Calvin had nothing to do with the five points of Calvinism. Um, tulip, as it is as known, um, is, is just kind of a crude bringing together of the doctrines of grace. The very last one is the perseverance of the saints. Um, it's the most favorable one. It can sometimes be uh, called once saved, always saved. And so even if you have difficulty with total depravity or unconditional election or limited atonement or irresistible grace, as many Christians, many people do as they're wrestling with these doctrines, almost all of us are whiskey Calvinists. We at least hold to the, the one-fifth, um, and that is the perseverance of the saints. We like that. We like that one. That comes to us easily. But really, it's, it's not, that's not the doctrine. The doctrine is not the perseverance of the saints. It really should be understood as the preservation of the saints. And if it's understood as the preservation of the saints instead of the perseverance of the saints as its fundamental foundation, all of a sudden, the work of that gift, the work of that truth is directed from someone else rather than ourselves. If it's the perseverance of the saints, too much seems to depend on me. If it's the preservation of the saints, somebody else is doing it. And what I want to give to you is what Paul is writing uh, in the very beginning of his book of, of Philippians. It's good to remember, Paul's writing from prison. 
Paul's not writing from the best of circumstances. He's, he's writing from prison. He's giving great thanks because uh, since he's um, chained up to some of these praetorium guards, he's just like, well, great gospel opportunity. I get to preach the gospel to these guys while I'm hanging here. But he writes to them in chapter 1 with a, a, an understanding that it's possible he's going to die. Um, for the sake of the gospel. And he says, uh, but to me to, me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is, is just more Christ. He has this wonderful attitude in the midst of the trials that are, uh, that are in front of him. And there's something that he wants us to learn as he writes to the, to the, to the Philippian saints. And so uh, I, I want to give you two statements. The first one I think is easy for us to comprehend and we all say an amen to it. And then the second one is more difficult. The first one is this, without the efficacious work of God through Jesus Christ, there's not a chance in the world you could be saved. Amen? Amen. It's, it's so true. Without the efficacious work of God through Jesus Christ, there is no way that I or you or anyone else could be saved. It's all God's work. But here's the second statement. Without the efficacious work of God through Jesus Christ, there's not a chance in the world that you will be perfected in holiness. But when we hear that, while we might say amen to the doctrine, might say amen to the teaching, we need to unpack that and think about that a little bit. Because we are can-do people. We are can-do Americans. We have a tendency to fall into the temptation and and the belief that that it's now up to us to really carry the ball all the way to the end it's all it's up to us to make sure what we what we do is we signed up for this thing called christianity and now we're going to do what we said we were going to do and, and it's up to us to do that but the efficacious work of god is 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 where our confidence needs to rest not in our efficacious work. Because if it's up to me, I'm going to fail. To the extent that it's ever up to me, I fail regularly over and over again. And what happens is I begin, oftentimes there's, there's times of doubt or there's, there's times of despondency or there's times of just frankly unbelief and, and, and not trusting God anymore because why are these things still bothering me? Why am I still tempted in these particular ways? Why do these trials still weigh on me in such a way that I doubt God's goodness in the midst of them? But if it's the efficacious work of God, and if my confidence isn't to lie in my work, my ability to see my salvation to the end, then my confidence grows. My confidence rests in in the faithfulness of another. Faith in God is, is not, faith in God we know is, is a gift, right? It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Faith in God is a gift. It's, it's the gift of God. But faith isn't this thing that is poured into you. Faith is trust, your trust, in the faithfulness of another. It's not about how much faith you feel at the moment. It's about how much you know the one to whom you have placed your faith in. And over and over again, the prayers of Paul for the saints are, show them, Lord, how faithful you are, how faithful you have been, how faithful you will be. And when we have, when we begin to see it that way, then, like he says here, we we become confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work, who began the good work? Well, it was all him. He who began the good work in you will complete it. 
He will finish it. He will bring it to its end until the day of Jesus Christ. As he writes this, the, 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 the purpose of this text actually or is, is the encouragement of all the saints of the church in Philippi. He writes in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And, and to all the saints does not mean to all the really, really special Christians. I mean, the ones who are the saints. No, the saints is just simply the elect ones, the, the, the members of the, of the congregation to which he is writing, the baptized Christians at Philippi, all of them, to all of them. And so the word that he's giving in, 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 the, in this letter to Philippi is, is to all the saints, to all the Christians, all the men, women, and children who are baptized in the covenant with him. And it is to do so um, where, and listen to what Paul does. He, the first thing he does is he gives thanks for these wonderful saints he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. While he loves these people and commends them, his confidence, you'll note, is not in them. Because as he says, I give thanks for you. Every time I remember you, I think of you, and I give thanks to God for you, remembering the fellowship that we have. And then he says, I'm able to give thanks. I'm able to have great joy in you and for you because I'm confident in God. Because I'm confident in God. Um, pastors, older brothers, elders, um, parents um, who are raising their children to the promises, we need to have this kind of mindset. Our confidence in the sanctification of those that we serve. Our confidence in the child rearing that we are doing. Our confidence in our ministering to those around us cannot be in ourselves. It can't be in ourselves. Our confidence is in God who has made certain promises to work through us, to work through his church, to work through the, uh, the, the, ministrations of, of, the administrations of grace that are provided to us to, to exactly accomplish what he has promised that he's going to do it. His confidence is not in them. His confidence is in God. He, he, he gives thanks to God, but he doesn't give thanks to God because they're really, really good people. He gives thanks to God because he's really, really confident in what God is doing. And what God is going to accomplish. So his confidence is in the promises of God and in the God of those promises. Frankly, this is what allows me to come up, stand up in a congregation of saints that I don't know. I've not met most of you, nearly all of you. And yet I can say, I can join with Paul, and I can join with the elders and pastors of your church, and I can give thanks to God as I look out amongst brothers and sisters, confident of what God is going to do, of what God is going to do in your lives, of what God is going to do in this church, of what God is going to do through his gospel in this world. He's writing to all of the saints. And, and you might think that there are some who, when I say that, you might say, well, he, he doesn't know me, and he doesn't know what I'm going through, and he doesn't know what I've done, and he doesn't know what I still struggle with. Well, I don't know that Paul knew every, what everybody, all the saints at Philippi were doing or what had happened in them. He was far from there at that time and had been years since he had been there. You might think that some are, there are some who are basically good or at least much better than others, but Paul knows that every believer needs the grace of God from beginning to end 
in order to complete the race. He knows that they need the grace of God from beginning to end in order to complete the race. If God doesn't give the grace, he has no hope. He has no hope in what's going to happen with the saints. But if God gives the grace, he has confident hope, very confident hope. Elsewhere, he condemned the idea that Christians would be able to add to the work of the Spirit in order to do their part in their salvation. In, in Galatians 3.3, 3, he's, this, he's, he's so angry at the church at Galatia because they've fallen into that, that exact error. They, they, they know they've been saved by grace, but they are now trying to work out that salvation on their own, in their, in their own doing. They've signed up, they've signed up to be a Christian, now they gotta do this stuff, right? And he says to them, are you so foolish? Galatians 3, 3. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perf, being made perfect by the flesh? Or he goes on to say to them in, later in Galatians 5, um, he says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. These are, these are so important words for the disciples of Christ. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. I think the idea he's getting in mind is always, and in this life, there is going to be this constant battle between the spirit and the flesh. When we are walking in the spirit, we will hear from our flesh, he's not very happy with us. And when we are walking in the flesh, when we're going in our own way, not filled with the spirit, not according to the spirit, we will feel, as Christians, the, the conviction of God's Holy Spirit. And so, whichever way we go, there is conflict. There is always going to be this ongoing conflict. Well, how do I deal with that? Too often, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to beat the flesh with the flesh. I'm trying to beat remaining sin in the, in, in the power of the old man that's died, that's been buried, that's gone. It doesn't work. What I'm told to do is to walk in the Spirit, and by that, I'm going to be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So... And, and this, this goes on from the very beginning to the very end of our work, um, in, of our, of our lives here. Listen to Charles Spurgeon as he talks about this idea. He says, if, if my finger, if my finger were on the golden latch of paradise and my, and my foot were on its jasper threshold, I should not take the last step so as to enter heaven unless the grace which brought me so far should enable me fully and fairly to complete my pilgrimage. He says, unless the grace which brought me all the way to the very threshold of heaven, of heaven's doors, I've just got one more step in. If I depend on myself, or if it's expected for me to take that final step, just the one last step, come on, Christian. He says, I'll fail. I'll fail every time. Unless the grace which brought me so far should enable me fully and fairly to complete my pilgrimage. So, this salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. Your salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. You were saved by grace through faith and you will be sanctified by grace through faith. Being born again, brought from darkness to light, delivered from the bondage of our fallen nature and dead heart. This is all a miracle. No one but God could do it. Uh, in in uh, Jeremiah chapter 13, he writes, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. His point, Jeremiah's point there is, it is it's impossible to change our nature. Only God is able to change 
our nature, who we are. And, and I don't know, um, I, I'm not sure why people think that, well, there's no such thing as miracles today. There's no such thing as miracles today. Each and every one of you who are in Christ, if you are born again, that's a miracle. That's the work of God and nothing less than the um, supernatural work of someone else upon your soul, upon your mind, upon your very nature. It is all miracle. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a world. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a world. Only God could fashion the heavens and the earth, and only God can create a new nature. God created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word, and he creates new creatures by the word of his power. He creates, he brings forth new natures through the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit upon someone. It is, it is by the word that he created all things, and it's by his word that he recreates all things, including you. But the same is true of your ongoing sanctification. And this is why later in, in Philippians, if you have a Bible, you want to turn to verses 12 and 13, you can look at this. In, in Galatians, he tells us that all of the work of our sanctification is also the work of God. He says in 2.12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There he goes. There's that to-do list again. I want you to work out your salvation... You're going to have to work it out. In fact, you're going to have to work it out with fear and trembling because you know how hard that's going to be to work out your salvation, to be made really complete in Christ all the way, to be like him in all ways, to bear the fruit of the Spirit at all times, to walk obediently and joyfully and, 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 um, and, and confidently like that all the days of your life. Work it out, Christian, he says. And if anybody reads verse 12 without reading verse 13, you're dead. It's bad. Don't do that. Never stop your devotions, your devotional reading through the scriptures at Philippians 2.12. Always, please, please, always read verse 13 also. Because he goes on, same sentence. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work in you. And I love, I love, love how he says this phrase. God's at work in you both to will, that is, to change your desires. I mean, don't you need your desires changed? Well, he's at work in you to change your desires. So when you, when you have these, when you have lusts in your heart, when you have bitterness, when you have covetousness, when you have these evil and wicked desires that, that raise up in you, that, that you, you wish you didn't have and you hope nobody notices, when they come up within you, you need to work them out with fear and trembling. God will judge those who, who fall into such wicked sins and practices. But God's at work in you to will, to change your desires. He's at work in you, so work it out as he works in. You're cutting with the grain now, not only to will, but to do. You say, I can't do that. I can't follow. I can't obey that. Well, God's at work in you to do. Now, what am, what am I to do with that, first of all? The first thing you are to do is believe it. You see, in, in the midst of the struggles of our lives, in the midst of our, the temptations that we battle, we fall into this tendency to think God can't caused me to change my desires or change my actions. God can't. And that's what, I, that's what we need to see. That, that when that happens, when that happens, we have to think about, I want to apply this to what you might call in your own life your besetting sin. Your besetting sin. 
You come to worship every Lord's Day. You're learning to confess your sins. We get down on our knees. And there you go. You have to confess that same sin again, don't you? Again. Yeah. And you get up and you rise and you hear the assurance of pardon. And you, and you say to yourself, I know I'll be back here again confessing the same sin. Now, I, I'm not preaching perfectionism. Please hear me straight. I'm not preaching perfectionism. But I do want to say to you, if, if we treat our, those, those things, those habits as besetting sins that we can't change, you need to think that through some more. If, if Philippians 2, 2, 11 and 12 is true, if Paul's confidence is a good confidence, is a right confidence, then you, you do ask yourself, why, are, why am I still trapped in what I might call my besetting sins? Well, if the power of God is, is that good, if his promises are that true, if they are for you, then why do you continue to fail? Why do I continue to fall? The gospel teaches you to see that your sin is not calling into question God's abilities to sanctify you. Your sin, because of the gospel, the gospel teaches you to see that your sin is not calling into question God's ability to sanctify you. The gospel teaches you instead to question your claim that your sin is besetting. I just can't change. I can't. The gospel teaches us to, to turn that I can't into this. I won't. I won't. I don't want to. And when God's spirit opens our hearts in the midst of our temptations to change I can't to I won't, we're stepping into the work of repentance. We're stepping into God's work of changing us. Because so much of our sin, so much of our, um, so much of our disobedience before God is, really comes down to just this, I won't. I won't follow you here. And that's why you continue to fall into this particular kind of sin. In that case, then not only do you need to repent of the sin, but you need to repent of your weak, man-centered gospel. Because you are thinking, I can't, as though it was up to you. Instead of, I won't, where you're saying to God, I don't want you to. Right? I don't want you to change me. This, this oftentimes takes... Um, um, us into some into some good time of prayer and honesty before God. But here's here's how the good news works. God is going to keep those that He has in Christ Jesus all the way to the end, and He's going to deal with your particular your particular sins, your particular shortcomings, your particular deeds of lawlessness. He is going to change you. In first in First Peter chapter one. Why don't you listen to the first words of Peter um, there in verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are you? Verse 5. You who are kept 
by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is so important in, in our struggles to remember who keeps whom. Who keeps whom. There is a promise that if we have been saved, we are guarded in that salvation by God himself and not by us. Our perseverance, then, is based upon God's perseverance, God's protection, and God's power. So turning, turning to God in the midst of, our, uh, of dealing with our sins means we, re, we remember, we, we, are, we are enlightened, we are reminded, God keeps you. If you're in Christ, God keeps you all the way to the end. And if you're in Christ, he's going to deal with you and he's going to perfect you all the way to the end. He's going to bring you to that threshold and bring you into his presence of glory in, uh, in the end. Jesus speaks in the same kinds of way in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, he gives these great words of confidence. John chapter 10, verse 28, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So, uh, so Jesus wants to make clear that if you have been, if you've received eternal life, if you've received this life in Christ, then, then He is the one who keeps it. He and the Father keep it, and they keep it all the way to the end. And I want to consider each one of these phrases here in John, uh, 10, 28. He says, he says, and I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. Either what you have received is temporal or eternal. If it is temporal, it could and will come to an end, if it was temporal, and it would come to an end because of your, uh, because of your falling away. Jesus is as clear as day. It is eternal. And then he says, and they shall never perish. Same, two sides of the same coin. And they shall never perish perish. Well, if one could lose his salvation, then he could perish. And then he says, and it's really helpful to see this, the, 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 this picture here. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And, and there's, where, there's where we begin to realize we're asking the wrong questions far too often. Rather than asking whether I could lose my salvation, we should ask if God can lose us. We, we think of our salvation like that airplane ticket. We think of that salvation like the airplane ticket, and you know what it's like when you get to the airport, and all of a sudden you can't find your boarding pass, right? I've, I've lost my salvation. I, I left it on my dresser at home, right? We, we tend to think of our salvation like as something we could lose, we could misplace, we could discard. But, but Jesus says it's the other way around, folks. It's not about whether you could lose your salvation, it's about whether Jesus could lose you. And he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one, not, singer, not, not a single person. He goes on to say, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand as well. So we cannot lose our salvation because it's not our salvation to lose. We were bought with a price. It, it, we're thinking that salvation is a ticket that we paid for. No, no, we're the ticket. <laughs> and Jesus paid for it. You're the ticket, Jesus paid for it, and he ain't going to lose you. He's not like you. He's not like us that way. He's perfect. And so he purchases that ticket, that imperfect ticket, and he carries it all the way, brings it all the way to the end. He is, uh, he is the one that cannot lose our salvation. 
I could lose it, but it's not up to me. Just like it wasn't up to me to receive salvation. It's not up to me. It's not up to me to keep it outside of the work of Christ in me. It wasn't up to me to believe in the gospel outside of the work of Christ in me. And it's not up to me uh, to keep my salvation except God be working in me. So, having been bought with a Christ, uh, bought with a price, he then finishes this. He says, my father is greater than all. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's out of, no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. It's as though Christ has you in his hand and the father has Christ in his hand. Go ahead, try. Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God. And this is why, now, when someone will say, but wait a second, isn't apostasy true? Isn't it possible that someone could have their, have a salvation and then apostatize? I, I know people who have. So isn't that true? Yes, and there's a doctrine, there's a true doctrine of apostasy that I'm not going to deal with this morning. But what I am going to deal with this morning is for you to hear the voice of Christ. You individually need to hear the, vo- the voice of Christ. Has he said this to you? You are mine. I bought you with the price. And I'm taking you all the way to the glorious inheritance that I have for you. I'm going to complete the good work that I, that I began in you. Right? So, yes. There is, a, there, there is a, the doctrine of apostasy. People do fall away. And then, and then people think, well, am I, good, am I one of those ones that could possibly? No. Hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Hear the voice of the word of God who promises you no one can snatch you out of my hand. What am I going to do with that? Believe it. Believe it. When Paul says, I'm confident of the good work that, is, that, that he has begun in you, he's going to complete until the day of Christ Jesus, and you, going through your Christian life, looks like this sometimes, right? And it's not going well right now. What am I to do with this, do- this doctrine of confidence? I'm to believe it, but I'm not to believe that I'm going to have the faith. It's it, 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 like this, this thing that um, we're, we're deists at heart. You know, you know what a deist is when he thinks, when a deist describes creation. God created the world like a clock is wound up and then he sets it up there to see how, how it goes, right? We're deists when we think that what God did is saved us, wound us up, set us over there, you know, put faith in us, right? put faith in us, got us going, and now he's watching to see how that's going. That's deism, that's a heresy. You should repent of it. God is at work in you. He didn't just say, okay, there, clock. Now you just, you just go on ticking. I'm going to be watching to make sure. No, he's the one that makes you keep ticking. He's the one that makes you keep believing. He's the one that keeps convicting you that it's time to get rid of that sin. He's the one that keeps assuring you that he's taking you all the way to the end. God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God is omnipotent. He's greater than all external temptations. He's greater than all external temptations. And better than that, he's greater than all of our inward corruptions which war against our soul. There are inward corruptions that war against our soul. There is the flesh that still battles and seems to win a lot. And God is greater than all of it. My Father is greater than all, he says. All external temptations, all inward corruptions, he can handle it. You can't. But he can. And this is why Paul would write um, one more passage I want to take you to. This is why Paul would write the great famous passage in Romans 8, 28 to the end of the chapter. Romans 8, 28 to 
Romans 8, 28, everybody knows, everybody has memorized. It's, it's that good and wonderful verse, and we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But he goes on to explain what that means for all of us. He says, there, he speaks about this, um, this work of, of progression unto our glorification, unto, unto, our, unto the end, unto our victory. He says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he also, he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so, part of, part of the revealed glory in the end is this. Part of the revealed glory in the end is this. You look back and you'll see how God was working all things for good. From some of the stupidest decisions and things that you ever made or did that you then maybe repented of, that then maybe you lived with consequences in, and yet we're going to be able to look back and see how the glory of God was revealed and made more manifest in us and in our lives through that. God is never up in heaven having to run plan B. I cannot believe what you just did. I need to consult with angels. We're going to have to figure out how to make this work for good. This one's going to be a tough one. That never happens in the courts of heaven. In the courts of heaven, everything that is predestined comes according to his plan, and his plan is your glorification, your perfection, your making it to the end, your being with him because nothing is going to take him out of his hand. So he goes on, and he says, well, if this is true, then what then shall we say to these things? For if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, for you. We hear, oftentimes you hear verse 34, who is he who condemns? And and we think about those who might be trying to condemn you. But the person who oftentimes condemns you more than anyone else is yourself. I mean, if you're honest, if you're honest about your faith, if you're honest about your walk with Christ, you know that oftentimes the greatest condemner of your soul is you and the devil, the accuser. And that's why it's wonderful news that Jesus is standing at God's right hand when the accuser brings any accusations. And Jesus says, no, here's my blood. Don't you remember, Father? Of course you remember. That blood was shed for just such sins. For that one's sins. And the accusation falls absolutely flat because Christ is at God's right hand making intercession for you. So, who is he who condemns? Well, it's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, for, for your sake we are all killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Which does mean that we know that God, as, that God works all things for our good, but that does not mean God works, all our things so, works out all things so life goes really easy. Or that we never have a hard time. We're promised hard times, and we're actually all promised until, until the return of Jesus Christ, all of us will go through that great trial of death that great enemy of death, and all the things that might lead up to it, 
No, the, the God is God has not promised an easy life, but He has promised eternal life, and He has promised that all things will work together in this life, such that it will lead to and reveal His glory and our glorification in Him. And so he's able to say in verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news for Christians. That's the gospel for Christians. That's the gospel for you that you need to hear. If the point is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, then how can we be left assuming that something can? A classic objection to this is that our own personal decision is an internal thing, unlike the, unlike the list of external threats. And so an, an argument against the perseverance of, this, the, perseverance of the saints is, is that we, when, when we're told here that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and then he gives a list, there's one exception made, and that is you could separate yourself from the love of God. Which is, the, is the, quite a downer theology, frankly. Because honestly, if I could separate myself, if I could separate myself from the love of God... I would have long ago. It's almost as though I've tried many times to separate myself from the love of God. But God, like a good father or a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go get the one, has come after me time and again by means of his spirit, by means of his word, by means of his brothers and my brothers and sisters in Christ. God's come after me time and time again to grab and bring and bring me back. I can't separate myself from the love of God. He won't let me. He won't let me. And that's glorious good news. Because if it was up to me, I'd be separated. But these external threats, instead, we need to see, are the very temptations by which men are led to fall away. These external threats. And if an internal decision to abandon Christ was the thing that would cause me to lose my salvation, I would have no comfort in this passage at all. No comfort. It would be meaningless. And so let's apply this now to our times of doubt and dark times and conclude this. There are times that we find our lives are like walking in darkness. While there were times of sweet communion with Christ, there is now some temporary depression of spirit that seems to overwhelm you or some heavy personal trial that threatens to last forever. But if it is true that all things are working for good, then here's the good news. It's true whether you believe it in the moment or not. See, the truth statement that all things are working together for good does not say that all things work together for good if you believe, if you have faith right now, if you really believe that. Because there's many times it's really hard to believe that, isn't it? It's really hard to believe that the things, all things are really working for good in this particular situation in my life right now. And the good news is this. In one sense, it doesn't matter if you believe. It's God, God's going to take you to the end. God's going to work it all out for good. If, if it is true that all things are working for good, then it is true whether you believe it in the moment or not. In fact, if it is true that the testing of your faith produces patience that will make you complete, as James says, 
then it is true whether you believe it in the moment or not as well. When James writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That is a tough verse, isn't it? (laughs) My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It is, it is true that that is a command, that you are to count it all joy. And when we don't count it all joy, we need to confess that as a sin. It's, it, it's, it is hard to give thanks in the midst of trials for the trials. But we are told to count it all joy. If we don't count it all joy, then we need to confess before God, I cannot count this as all joy. And, and, and then we hear the words, no, you won't count it all joy, will you? But let my spirit be in you. Let my spirit cause you to walk in my spirit And let's change things. Because actually, that verse is not just a command, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why would he invite you to count it all joy? Because he says, here's what I'm doing. I am producing in you perfect, mature faith. Perfect. I'm making you more and more into the image of my son. This trial has been brought to you, personally personally chosen by me for you, to make you perfect and complete. And I invite you to join with me in counting it joy in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the loss. I know you can't see it. I know, I know that you're not able to, to see how it could be joyful, but I invite you to trust me. I invite you to trust me. And then, and, and remember, faith is not something you're not going to try to well up and strengthen. Faith is, do you, do you know who God is who said that to you? Do you know who your Savior is who told you that every trial, everything going on in your life is going to work out for your good and for your glory all the way to the end? Do you know him? And that's where, that's where the, the, the readings of the Gospels, the, the, the coming together to renew covenant and over and over again, all of that is so we would know him far more than we do now, so that we would be able to trust him far more than we do now. Because if it is true that the testing of your faith produces patience that will make you complete, then it is also true whether you believe it in the moment or not. Jesus is our example, who for the joy set before him suffered on the cross. Who for the joy set before him. So Jesus could have gone to the cross and, it, and he could have gone to the cross with a bad attitude. He couldn't because he was perfect. And because he was perfect, he went with the joy. He counted it joy because he knew what the Father was doing. And he invites you to do the same as you walk through this life that he has given to you. So repent of um, um, balancing your faith on your feelings and your hope only on what you can see. I can't see how this is going to work out, and I don't feel like it's going to work out. Well, don't, don't place your faith in those feelings or in what you can see or what you cannot see. Hebrews 11.1 1 will say, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Father, you're asking me to trust you in something I can't see. Yes, that's faith. <laughs> that's faith. That's what I'm, when, that's what I'm giving you to, to grow in. And every time we gather together, on the Lord's Day, and we hear God's word, and he deals with us by his word, and then he invites us to commune with him at his table. He then sends us out into this world 
He then sends us out into this world to live, live out our lives with fear and trembling, knowing that he is at work in us. And this is why for ages in the church, even in the old covenant system, there would be a benediction, a good word, the word of God himself, the promises of Christ placed upon those who are now going out in the world to serve him with words of benediction and the ongoing power of God's wonderful sanctification. In a benediction, here's what's going on. God, by means of his minister, places his name upon his people as they leave the assembly and go out to their varied callings. Having been dealt with by his word and feasted at his table, we are sent into the world with a grace that, in the midst of whatever sufferings, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. 1 Peter 5.10 it is, it is to place each of us in the hands of him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. How can these ministers say such things? How can Pastor Burrow stand up here at, with such confidence and say to you that I know that you're going to, you know, you're going to be kept from stumbling and, and you're going to be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy? He knows you better than I do. Well, I'll tell you this. I didn't check with him. Pastor Burrow, Pastor Allen, he does not have confidence in you. He does not have confidence in you. He's confidence in God. He has confidence in your Savior. He has confidence that as he sends you out with the word of God, with the name of Christ placed upon you, he has confidence that Confident that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's confident that this week God will give that to you. He's confident that in Christ you will grow in that more and more in these coming days. He is confident in God that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Ministers of the gospel are to be confident in God that he is going to absolutely complete what he has begun. And you, all of us, the entire congregation, is, is invited to agree. I don't have confidence in myself either, you might say. But I've heard the word of God, and I'm confident in him. I'm confident in him All the way through Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and everything that he has for me. I'm confident in him that he will complete the good work that he begun in me. That he began in me until the day of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.